Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Praise the Lord. Well, it's good to have you here in church. My name is Pastor Derek, if you don't know who I am, and just want to welcome you to the uh, continuation of our series, You Asked For It. Turn to your neighbor and say, you asked for it. So he's going to give it. <laughs> we surveyed you guys and asked you a bunch of questions, and all, you know, say, bring in to us your questions, common questions, Christian belief questions, culture questions, concerns, and things like that. And we, we simply built a series around that, and we're in part five kind of the fifth installment of that series. In, in the first week, we answered kind of, and we're doing this sort of in the, 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 the priority of them, the one that got the most votes, and then we're just kind of tackling them one at a time. But week one, we dealt with stress because everybody wanted to know how to overcome stress. So that's kind of one of those felt need messages. And, and then in week two, we dealt with a very important subject, and that is kind of like, you know, how do I find my purpose? How do I know this is what God has for me in my life? Really important question. Absolutely think that's a must for any Christ follower. And third week, we dealt with a controversial subject. Are we living in the last days? And, and um, uh, kind of condensed these eschatological events into one message. And so if you want an oversimplification of a massive topic, you definitely want to go online and watch uh, the last day message. And then last week we had uh, one of our very own, Pastor Deej, bring a fantastic message answering a variety of questions. Can we give it up for Pastor Deej? And uh, he did a great job, one of our associate pastors, dealing with subjects from you know, things like cremation, and so if we're going to be raptured, you know, what if I was cremated, you know, what is God going to do with that? And then all the way from that to the subject and sensitivities of suicide, and so it was a very uh, relevant and uh, difficult task. And this week, no exception, you guys asked for a very uh, kind of difficult topic to be addressed, and the question that you came up with is a really hot topic. That's my key word there. It's a hot topic. And uh, is everybody tracking with me out there? And what, what, what in the H-E double hockey sticks is he going to be talking about this morning? I have no idea. Um, but how could a loving God send anyone to hell? How could a loving God send anyone to hell? Have you ever heard that question or thought that question before? Anybody? Raise your hand. There's a bunch of liars in here. You know where you're going to go if you don't, if you lie. <laughs> okay, okay. See, most people have thought that question or asked that question. Most, many cases, people have asked that question in an accusatory tone. In other words, you know, if he was such a loving God, you know, how could he send people to hell? And some people, well-meaning, have asked the question more as an inquiry or just it's inquisitive. I just want to know, like, if he's loving, then what about this? I mean, it, the, the crime, you know, doesn't, doesn't fit the punishment. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Is everybody tracking with me? And so I'm going to give you two main points to simplify a massive subject, and it's going to be based on kind of, you know, a bunch of different texts. But the two main texts that I'm going to be talking from is Romans chapter 1 and then Isaiah chapter 5. Now, Romans 1, actually, the book of Romans, if you're a new Christ follower, if there was a book that some people would say the Gospel of John, but if there was one book in the Bible that you could have to learn about your faith and understand Christianity and its belief system, it would be the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 Maybe Romans 6 and Romans 8, probably like really meaty, meaty chapters. But Romans 1 is packed full of stuff inside of that. And so we're going to highlight that particular chapter probably the most this morning. But here's two things you need to understand to, ans to answer this difficult question. The first one, write this down if you're taking notes. The first answer is, is basically this. God is a just God. Everybody say that. God is just. just. So in other words, God will never render, give 
uh, an unjust judgment to any person. He will, you need to know this as a Christ follower. This is a conviction of Christianity uh, that God will never give an unjust judgment. He'll never judge someone unjustly, any person. So that statement leads us to another question, kind of a, a classical question, uh, not classical in the sense that you might think, but just like it's so common, it's just it's a classic. And basically the classic question is how God, if, if God would, would, would send somebody to hell, what about people who've never heard the gospel before? What about them? What about the people, you know, who uh, are in a, um, you know, the unreached people groups of the world where nobody's ever gone there and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ? If the gospel is so important and everybody needs good news, what if they didn't get the good news in the first place? What if, what about the people who came before Jesus even came to the earth? What about them, those who died? What about those kind of uh, questions that people have? People want to know these kind of things, and it all leads, in, it's all in this kind of same bucket. What if someone in, in, you know, in you know, Timbuktu never heard about Jesus? What are we going to do about that? So I just want you to know before we answer those kind of questions, the overarching conviction that is necessary, the lens you need to look through is that God is a just God, and that God will never render an unjust judgment to any person. Now, here's the basis for that. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, really critical verses here. Follow this with me as we go forward, and I'll do my best to answer some of those opening questions. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Your translation might say, suppress the truth by their wickedness, okay? So I'll come back to that word suppress because it's a really critical part of this uh, problem that we have in our society today. Because what may be known of God is manifest, and you want to circle or underline these two words, in them, what, we, what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it, here's two more words to underline or circle, to them, in them, and to them. God has shown or manifest himself in them and to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that we are without what? Excuse. We are without excuse. So since the beginning of the time, beginning of time, God testifies about himself to every person on planet earth. In other words, according to Romans 1, no person is without, every person is without excuse. No person is without excuse for their unrighteous or, or, or life separate from God or wickedness from God. He has revealed himself to all of us. He has done this inwardly and he's done it outwardly. There's something that's going on inside us that is revelational, and there's something that's happening outside to us that is also revelational. And this text clearly states that God reveals himself to people. But here's what happens sometimes. In other words, my father used to say, if you have a flaw at the first, you have a fizzle at the finish. If it starts wrong, it ends wrong is what it really means. And so to answer tough biblical questions, you, uh, biblical, uh, questions, you have to answer them from the Bible. You have to have a biblical perspective when you're answering tough biblical questions. The Bible answers tough questions that we have in life. Can I have an amen? And so we don't go to Google. We go to God, as I've said. We don't go to Siri. We go to Scripture, right? Everybody with me? Well, we don't go to Bing. We go to the Bible. That's right. We don't go to Yahoo. We go to Yahweh. 
All right, anyway. If it didn't go good, I was going to blame it on Deej. He gave me that last one. But it went good, so I'm going to take credit for that. So it's all good. So, so a lot of times we argue and debate about things because we're coming at the question laterally from a human perspective and from human opinions. In fact, the Bible even addresses that. This is a bonus verse, but in Colossians 2.8 it says, we shouldn't base our beliefs on the philosophies of men, the traditions of men, or anything other than Christ. So when we're going to answer tough questions, I can't do it based on what I think. In fact, I was witnessing to a young guy recently, a former NFL football player, and he had given his heart to Christ here, here at Connect, and I was just basically sharing with him in a language that he could understand. I was basically saying that, okay, now that you've determined Jesus is your Lord and Savior, now you've got to determine he's, he's your Savior, excuse me. Now we've got to decide, is he your Lord? And as your Lord, you have to say, I have a coach now in my life, and there's a playbook for my life, and I'm going to follow what the coach says, and I'm going to follow the playbook that he has for my life right? And so a lot of times people decide, you know, I, I love Jesus. Yes, I do, but I'm going to do whatever I want and go wherever I want to go. And we can't do that with tough questions. We have to go to the Bible for those things. Amen? And so God testifies to every person according to this passage, and the word says it's happening internally and externally. An example of that is, and you know this to be true, that every person has a conscience, right? And it's not Jiminy Cricket, it's Jesus, okay? It's the Holy Spirit at work inside of you. And so when, 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 when you experience certain things in your life, there's something that, that testifies inwardly to you, whether this is wrong or this is right, or there's something that the Bible says in John that the, the Father draws us in John 14. It tells us, you know, we come to God because the Father draws us. God did that. He put that inside you, that conscience to want to know more or find out more about God. Your conscience, in essence, talks to you. Right? Is everybody with me on this? It testifies in us, and also there are things that are happening outside of us that are testifying to us. You, can, you can't tell me that, in fact, this last weekend, many men from the church here were at a men's conference called Warriors. It was awesome. Yeah, it's a lot of testosterone still left over. And so uh, we played a lot of sports, and we're all very sore today. But... Um, when we, were, when we were outside, you could be outside at night. We're in Waterville uh, Valley. It's just absolutely beautiful. And I can just remember being outside, looking at the stars, clear as can, be, clear as can be. I could see the stars crystal clear in the mountains. And the first thought I have is, look what God has done. Now, now, I'm on the other side of that connection and relationship with God, but if I was on this side of the relationship with God, hadn't established that relationship with God, I probably would look at that, and you have too, and thought, there must be a God. How do you explain all this? When you saw your first double rainbow, you had to think to yourself, you know, there must be more. There has to be something there. That's God testifying to you through creation. No one is without excuse. He reveals himself to people who want to know him and find out about him. Can I have an amen out there? You have to wonder, is there a God? And if you don't, I'd say you, you're lying or you're in deception. And I'll deal with that uh, deception in a few minutes. But if you would say, no, I don't look at those things and see those things, I would say to you, you once did, and now you don't, because you've suppressed the truth by your wickedness, is what Romans 1 says. See, the truth has slowly been suppressed by your wickedness. I'll come back to that in just a little bit. But you also know, and I, I bet this is true for you, if you look back, let's say, at your childhood, where... Uh, you've had some sort of experience where you're by yourself and, and you're walking maybe in the woods and you find yourself wanting to talk to God. 
and connect with God. Or maybe you, maybe you went to a church like this and it was something that happened amidst a worship experience and you felt God's presence for the first time. I remember our drummer, Chris Belly, he's not the one that was playing this morning. Um, uh, he's not as, Chris is not as good looking as the one that was playing this morning. But, but, but I remember when Chris came to church uh, and, and it was amidst worship that the presence of God came over him and he made a connection with God. Nobody had spoken a word, none of the words that even made sense to him. It was just, it was just God's spirit. How many have ever had some kind of an encounter where God was connecting with you and you were connecting with him? Raise your hand. Okay, so, that, so it's almost everybody. And the truth is, it's not almost, it is everybody. At some point in time, this kind of thing has happened. And so the Bible, in essence, is saying this in Romans 1. No person will ever stand before God and be able to say, God, you, you didn't tell me about you. <coughs> you can't say to God, nobody ever told me about you. God's going to say, yeah, I did. I told you about me. I revealed myself to you. I'm the one who showed myself to you. And I did it inwardly, and I did it outwardly, according to Romans 1. Is everybody with me? Here's the bonus part of this, or the other side of this. The Bible also says, again, if we're looking through his perspective and his lens, every person who seeks God will find God. Amen. So if you seek him, you will find him. Look at your notes. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17 says, I love those who love me, and those that seek me will what? They'll find me. Jeremiah 29, 13, a very familiar and popular passage. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. Matthew 7, 7 through 11 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you for everyone. I think it's important to note that it's not talking about believers. It's talking about everyone. Everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you? If a son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If then you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, in other words, you being evil means you not being perfect, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask him? So this is what it's saying is, we got people this way that are doing good to people, but sometimes we look this way and think God would do something bad to us. No, God is way better than us, and he would only give us good things, Okay? So the lens that you look through is so important. It's like your view of God will determine your relationship with him. Acts 17, 26, it says this. Here he's talking to the whole world. It says, and he has made from one blood every nation of men. This is talking about the Genesis account, the first human beings on the planet, Adam and Eve. In other words, in other words let me back up and say this. Have you ever been somewhere where somebody had the same last name as you, but you don't know them, but you thought maybe we're related? Anybody ever thought that? I had somebody just friend request me whose last name was Fry, and I'm sure she was doing that because she thought we were related. I kind of looked before I, I didn't accept it, by the way, because when I looked at her Facebook, I was like, oh, no way, Jose. And, <laughs> but I think she, you know, she thought maybe we were related. But let me just say this. The scripture is saying that because of Adam, we're all related. So every, you look around you, you're all related, okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, what's up, cuz? Turn to that, say that, right. Okay, see, what's up, cuz? What's up? So it's saying, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the earth, listen to this, to dwell on the earth, and has, this is key, listen to me now, listen, listen to your pastor. He has determined, everybody's getting chit-chatty, that's all right, but this is important stuff here. He has determined the pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek God. Let me explain that to you. God looks at, he's the only one who can look at all of human history at the same time. 
And he's the only one who has scope from beginning to end. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He sees all. He knows all. He handles all. And he says, I'm going to decide the time, the, the place, the, the time, the place, and space that Derek Fry is going to live in human history. And the reason that I'm placing him here is that perchance, if he chooses of his own free will, perhaps he would reach out to me. And if he will, I'm going to be right there alongside him. He's saying that to me, and he's saying that to every single one of you. That's why you're alive when you're alive, where you're alive, because he wants to connect with you. That's what this is saying. Woo! That's good. That's good. So, he has determined their pre-appointed times, the boundaries of their dwelling, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that, this is what I was just saying, they might grope. That word grope means to make an effort, despite all the difficulties, they might just go after him and find him what? though he's not very far from every one of us. And then it says, in him we live and move and have our being. There's an old song that I want to sing, but I won't because it's really, it's really weird. But uh, in him we live and move. All right, sorry. <laughs> How many know that song? Raise your hand. All right, you're all weird too. Okay, so, so no person will ever have an unjust judgment from God, all right? Now let me go back to that word suppress. This is bonus, everybody say bonus information. Why? So some people would say, maybe to you, maybe you thought this, maybe you're here thinking this right now, you're watching online, you say, I didn't see him clearly. He hasn't showed himself to me. I didn't look at creation and see that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't my conscience didn't tell me God was real. This is, this is what Paul is also addressing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 1, 18, basically is saying this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. How do they suppress the truth? truth by their what? Wickedness. Okay, so here's what, here's what I wrote in my notes when I was just kind of having devotions with God and chewing on this. We can reduce our ability to see the truth, to experience and have revelation knowledge about who God is based on our behavior. Okay, that's what happens. And so that's why God is so passionate about eliminating sin and reducing the propensity for us to continue to sin because, he, because God knows sin will separate us from God. That's why James 4.8 says if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. But sin makes us want to run from God. Wickedness, the results of sin, make us run from God. And when we do, it suppresses the truth and our ability to see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but by him. We suppress the truth by our wickedness, but when we let God deal with our wickedness and we come to him, he will always come alongside us. Amen? So that's what happens. Matthew 5, 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. John 14, 21, paraphrase, basically says, if you love God and obey God, he will show himself, reveal himself to you. In Romans 12, 2, it basically says that your, your mind has to be renewed so that you can find the purpose and plan and will and pleasing will of God for your life. You have to not conform to the pattern of this world. When you surrender to that wickedness, you are suppressing the truth. When you deal with that sin, you will see the truth and the truth will set you free. Woo! That's what happens. So when we don't and we keep going on that way, the rest of the chapter, uh, verse 21 and following, gets a little heavy. And people misunderstand this. They read it and they say, wow, look what God did to us. No, it's not true. It basically says that, that because of our wickedness, God relents or he turns us over or one of the words it says is in many translations he gives us over he gives us over to three different things he gives us over to our sinful desires our shameful lusts and a depraved mind that give us over isn't his vengeance it's not his re it's not his revenge on us it's his release of us 
Let me, let me unpack that for you. So how many of your parents have kids? How many of you are kids of parents? Just trying to get full participation. Everybody seems to struggle this morning. I'm going to get you one way or the other. Okay. So, so as parents with kids, you know what it's like to raise your kids, train your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, right? The Bible tells us to do that, Proverbs 4. But sometimes your kids choose their own way, don't they? Why? Because they have free will, right? And they're just going to go and do what they're going to do. And you have come to a point where for a while you hold them, you guard them, you protect them, and then you give them a little bit of freedom. And they do okay, okay. And then you give them a little bit more and they do okay. But then they mess up and they're, oh, pulling back in, pulling back in. At some point, though, there's a release, isn't there? You just relent. You know what? This is what you've said. They're just going to have to learn. Do you still love them? You love them with all your heart. You give an organ to save their life. If they were in the hospital, you'd show up and just say, take me. What do you need? What, what body parts do you need to save them? You never stopped loving them, but you had, to, you had to release them to their own devices so that circumstances and the situations would teach them, even at the threat of losing sometimes greatly or costly. Is everybody tracking with me? That's what Romans 1 is saying here. Right? He, says he, gave, he gives us over. He gives us over. And the other side of it is, it's not just him being a good parent, but we have also need to see the personalization of it. We've rejected him. We've rejected him. Have you ever been rejected by your children? I have. It hurts. Now, you know, next, next to my wife, it's the most painful thing to be rejected by your children. You're doing everything you can, and they don't, miss, they don't understand you. Like, they can't see what you can see. They can't understand. They don't have, this is their scope. This is your scope. And you think, my gosh, I'm just trying to save them. I'm just trying to protect them. So, so there's a personal side of it, which leads me to my next point. And that's it. Like God is a loving God. God is a loving God. Write that down. He's a loving God. How could a loving God send anyone to hell is what people, people ask. To answer that question, you don't only have to do that from a biblical perspective. You have to do it from a God perspective. God, a person who loves us. He's passionate about us. He pursues us. And this is essential to the revelational knowledge of who God is. God, you need to know this theologically, did not create hell for people. In fact, he sent his son into the world specifically to ensure that no one would ever go to hell. Whether people knew about Jesus or came after him, God's revealed himself to everyone. You say, well, what about the gospel? What about Romans 10, 9, and 10 that, that you know, they, they confess and believe? What about that? Maybe everybody didn't come to God in the post-Jesus arrival or, or dis, when he descended to earth and the gospel came about. In fact, in Acts 4.12, it says salvation is found in no one else except Jesus Christ, right? But what about before Jesus? God revealed himself to people personally, intimately. He's still always revealing himself. Pre-Jesus, post-Jesus, Romans 1 is telling God reveals himself to everybody. Why? Because he loves everybody. He reveal Do you think Abraham's going to go to heaven? Yeah. Do you think Moses is going to go to heaven? Yeah. Did they, did they know Jesus? Well, ultimately they do. In fact, in fact, Moses got to see Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, we got to see him do that, you know, in the scriptures there in Matthew chapter 17. God reveals himself to everyone personally. It may not have the same method to come to that salvation pre-Jesus, but post-Jesus, he reveals himself to everybody. I know I'm, I'm shaking up some people's thinking right now, which is good, but God wants no one to be separate from him. In fact, in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says this, the Lord is not slack in concerning his promise, as some count slackness or slowness, but is long-suffering toward us, listen to this, not willing that what? Anyone should perish. Anyone should be separate. Anyone should face that final consequence, but that all should come, all means all, to that place of decision. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It means to change your mind. 
I'm not going to put myself at the helm of my life anymore. I'm going to put God at the helm of my life. I'm wrong. He's right. I am sinful. I need forgiveness. Those are the things that bring about change in our lives. Ultimately, that's what God's looking for, whether it's pre-Jesus or post-Jesus, is repentance. He's looking for repentance. And so when people repent and come to God, they're saved. Does that make sense to everybody? And so to answer this question, I want to give you some stories that will help you understand the lens that God looks through. Because the problem is we're looking through, again, man's lens, our opinions, our philosophies, and we're not looking through God's lens and God's perspective. But I want you to think about it this way. He's a person, and he can be rejected. And so man can uh, perform this inexcusable, rebellious rejection of him, and we see it all through humanity. I want to give you four stories that kind of depict this. Listen to this. Isaiah 14, in your notes, and Revelation 12, talk about Lucifer, who eventually went renegade and was later named Satan, but Satan and the angels rejected God. Think about this. Uh, Satan, uh, Lucifer, rebelled against God. Uh, he was able to distort truth and get one-third of all the angels to follow him. He was the worship leader in heaven, which was a pretty prominent, uh, prestigious role in heaven, to be the worship leader of all of heaven. How many would agree with that? A pretty big deal. He was also beautiful. He was, he was becoming perfect to look at, so people were drawn to him. And he leveraged all of that for himself as opposed to bringing glory to God. He brought glory to himself, and in the process, he was able to deceive one-third of all the angels. Now, think about these angels. These angels didn't have it so rough. They didn't grow up in the ghetto. They didn't have a bad father. They weren't mistreated. There was no temptation to sin in heaven, but they still rejected and rebelled against God. That hurts. That hurts God. In fact, as a result, God ultimately, because of this rebellion and rejection, he throws Satan, he hurls Satan like lightning from heaven to the earth. The Bible says like a flash. Like you think you know a person who has a fastball. God had the biggest fastball in all of human history. And he throws Satan to, to the earth. And, and most theologians, and I believe that's when hell was formed. And many theologians believe that, that Satan and all the angels were thrown to the center of the earth. And so this is what happens right there in that particular moment. But the Bible tells us in Matthew 25, 41, one, that hell was created for not man, but Satan and all his fallen angels. It wasn't created for you and me, according to scripture. It's very important for you to understand that. But have you ever been rejected before? I was just talking about the rejection you can face from your kids. Does it hurt? Yeah, I don't think there's a greater hurt than rejection. But I think we have, um, we're we, we look at God as like this sterile, clinical, emotionless, you know, uh, you know, just like a cyborg, when, he's, when he can be hurt, he can be grieved, he can be angry, he can cry. The emotions that you have, you know, God gave you. You were created in his image. He was rejected when, 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 when people uh, turned against him and rebelled against him. Here's another example. He, he later creates man, and, he, and, and of course, he does it in his image and giving him a will and feelings and emotions and all of that. And the first two that he created, Adam and Eve, rejects God. Now, think about their circumstances. They, 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 they did not know God. They knew God very well. The Bible says they walked and talked with God in the cool of the day. I mean, can you imagine like the intimacy of relationship that we long for today? They had that just, just granted to them out of the gate. And, and on top of that, they had a perfect marriage. I mean, everything they said to each other, they understood. Woo! 
No matter how many words, it could be few, little, it all worked out. They had perfect environment. The day like yesterday was every day. You know, it was just perfect, perfect, perfect bodies. Everything just looked perfect year round, every single year, after year, after year. There was no drop, stop, and roll. Everything worked forever. All right, they had a perfect God, a perfect loving relationship with God, yet they rejected God. There was no sin, no sin at that time. They allowed sin to come in. Third story is Jesus was also rejected, and we actually killed him. Humanity killed him in Matthew 27, 22, and I'll come back to that in a little bit, but God went out of his way. From his perspective, God's trying to create an opportunity to restore that which was broken. Fellowship has been lost because of sin. Sin separates I was just preaching this last weekend. There's three things sin does. It separates, it saps our strength, you know, it, it, it sucks the life out of us, and it, sin just, it trails behind and trips us up. Sin's bad, and God knew that, so he's trying to make a way for us to be restored to fellowship with him. So he sent his one and only son and gave him for us, and many still rejected him. Listen to this. Later, we talked about this at the, the, the end times message that we had just a couple of weeks ago. I put a timeline on the screens for you to see that there's a distinction between the rapture and the second coming. How many remember the distinction that I drew out? Just an oversimplification. But the second coming, when Jesus comes the second time to earth, he will rule and reign, the Bible says, for a, a thousand years, a millennium. And during that millennial reign, basically Satan is going to be, he's going to be thrown into a bottomless pit. He's going to have to remain there kind of in prison for, for a time. And while he's there, um, uh, you, we will rule and reign on the earth. But after that thousand years, he's going to be given a temporary release to come out. And when he does, he is going to still have the ability and people will still follow him and be deceived by him and reject God. It's amazing. Just amazing that that could happen. And see, we don't realize that at the end of all of this, this, this life we now live in, the earth that we're, we hold on so tightly, the things in it or whatever, it's all, gonna, it's all, it's all corruptible. It, can, it will all be destroyed. God's going to recreate this earth. He's going to, a new heaven and a new earth, the Bible talks about in the book of Revelation. Why does he do all that? Because all he really wants and all that you can give God, you can't give him gifts, you can't give him something that he doesn't already have. All he's looking for is a family. He wants us all to be together. His goal is to have a big family reunion. And so he has to deal with this thing called sin. But the greatest gift God ever gave us outside of the relationship with him, obviously Christ is the greatest, greatest gift he ever gave us. But the greatest gift in creation is free will. Free will. Free will is the most powerful spiritual muscle of the soul. Choice. All right? Now listen to this. I, just, I want you to think about this. Think about this through a parental lens as well. It might help you. But you got to understand, the Bible says in 1 John 4 that God is love. It doesn't say he has love. It doesn't say he does love. He is love embodied. Okay? Now, absolute love requires free will. You cannot say you really love somebody if you don't give them the choice to love you back. Absolute love requires free will. Absolute free will, listen, requires absolute boundaries. Let it sink in. So if you're going to give somebody free will choice, there has to be a choice to do what's right, choice to do what's wrong, what's awesome, what's not so awesome, what's blessing, what's cursing, what's love, you know, what's separation. 
right? Is everybody tracking with me? Absolute love requires free will. Absolute free will requires absolute boundaries. Suddenly, if you look through his lens, hell, the existence of hell becomes the ultimate evidence of his love. He loves us, and that's exactly why he had to create the ultimate boundary, hell. Back to free will. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I was thinking about this just the other day when I came home, and the dishwasher was on. I was so grateful that the dishwasher was on because I hate, you know, not having clean dishes. I wish they were empty, but anyway, the dishwasher was on. That dishwasher was operating, you know, mechanically. It's a robot. I didn't come home and the dishwasher was on and celebrate and have a party because the dishwasher is simply just a machine just doing what it's supposed to. However, if there are dishes in the sink and I'm at the, at the sink and I'm washing those dishes and Stacy comes home, how many know we throw a party? <laughs> right? If my son, when he used to live with us, takes out the trash and I didn't ask him to do that, how many know we do cartwheels down the hallway? How many know that when Hunter, our dog, gets a bath one time a year by my daughter Madison and she does it and I didn't have to ask her, how many know we celebrate that? Because somebody did that what? Of their own what? Free will. They did that their own free will and volition. So when somebody doesn't have to love you and they do, it's meaningful. When somebody has to love you and they do, it's meaningless. Free will. Free will. Did you know that's what makes God happy? It makes God happy when you worship. Do you know why? Because you chose to worship him. Nobody told you you didn't have to be here this morning. You chose to be here this morning. That's why God smiles from heaven and says, look at my people that have chose to worship me this morning at Connect Community Church. And so we can't go through life and just blame God about hell, okay? Because would someone, would, would God send someone to hell? The answer is no. But people send themselves there. You need to understand your eternal destination is determined by you and me, not by God. And we can't blame him. Well, you might say, well, what if that person doesn't know? They know. God's saying, I, I told them. God is a just God. He is a loving God. And so we have human error sponsored by Satan to turn our hearts away from God, to get us caught up in sinful behavior that will ultimately suppress the truth and keep our eyes blind to God. The Bible says, you know, that's like there's a veil over our eyes, but when anybody repents, the veil is taken away and we can see God. All we have to do is repent to see God. But you have to choose to do that, you know? Jim's, Jim's in that chair. He's not, he's not chained to that chair. If he was chained to that chair, I, can't, I, I wouldn't go over to Jim and say, hey, Jim, he's chained to the chair. Jim, I really appreciate you spending this time with me. He's like, no problem, I'm here all day. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no free will in that, right? You're not chained to the chair this morning. You chose to be here this morning. You chose to get up and worship God. Some of you chose to give your gifts to God. Some of you chose to be a giver to God. Some of you chose to put God first in your life. God wants you to choose him. It's the ultimate expression of your love to him. You're not chained to a chair. Now, God chose us before all humanity. We are his creation. He chose us, but we have to choose him to be a part of his family. We're all his creation, but we have to choose to be his child. We're all his creation, but we have to choose to be a part of his family. Is everybody tracking with me this morning? And the only people in heaven are the people who chose him. And you are his creation, but you have to choose. The ultimate blasphemy. If, if you ever heard, some of you know this verse in the Bible, and it's, it kind of messes you up and shakes you up. Anybody ever heard about the unpardonable, unforgivable sin? Like, what is the unpardonable, unforgivable sin? Mark chapter 3, verse 29 talks about whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of, it says, eternal sin. This unforgivable 
unforgivable sin is basically, this is what I believe, and many people believe this, the unforgivable sin is when we reject the ultimate plan of salvation. The reason it says the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit is the agent of change that brings about salvation in a man's heart. This is called the doctrine of regeneration. So the ultimate unforgivable sin, where we, God eventually relents, it's not revenge, it's release, is when we say, I don't take your plan. I'll, save, I'll pay for my sins myself. People who go to hell are people who don't let Jesus pay for their sins. They decide, I'm going to pay for my sins myself. That's the ultimate blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 5. I think it's in your notes. I want to unpack this one verse to you. These, actually, it's two verses real quickly, and um, then we're going to conclude. Isaiah chapter 5 is a really, this is one of those you should put into your devotions this week, and I don't know if that means anything to you, but that's when you spend time with God alone, and uh, it's a good idea. We recommend that around here. Um, but Isaiah chapter 5 this is a lamenting prophet, not, not like Jeremiah, but he's, he's, he's really working hard to reach the people of God. And there's some uh, language in here, figurative language, that I want to unpack for you quickly. And I'm just going to ask you to trust me that, that what I'm describing is correct. I'm going to read from Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 4, and then also 11 and following. Isaiah says this, and this is speaking of things to come. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved. Beloved is referring to Jesus or God. Regarding his vineyard, his vineyard are the people of God, the people. So it's Jesus and his people. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vines. This is God doing everything he can to make his people healthy. He built a tower. This is referring to the church or the pulpit of God in some cases. He built a tower in the midst and also made a wine press in it. The wine press is the holy, representative of the Holy Spirit all throughout the scriptures. So he accepted it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. So then the prophet says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard, me and the people, what more could I have done to my people that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? So from God's perspective, I'm doing everything I can to make them successful in this life. Verse 11, skipping down, it says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them. The harp and the strings, the tambourine and the flute and wine are in their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord. They suppress the truth, nor consider the operation of his hands by their wickedness. Now, therefore, my people have gone into captivity. They've gotten into bondage because of their sin. This is what happens as a result. They can't see their bondage because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished and their multitudes dried up with thirst. And this is a theological shift here that you need to see. Verse 14. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged itself. Now, Sheol is the Hebrew word for hell. In the, in the Greek, the, the, hell, the word for hell is Hades. Well, you see a lot of times in your Bible, depending on the translation you have, as a result of commentators, commentators are just people who have a man's opinion about certain things. They have comments about certain things. They sometimes take the word hell out of the Bible. So the my problem with the translators, and many people's problem with that, is we change words and soften them up. So, and so if I was writing an English Bible, and I was trying to describe the word water, and I put agua in there, people would, you know, you start reading, and you see agua, you say, well, that's not water. Well, yeah, it is. It's just a different word for for water. People are doing that now with the word hell. Yet Jesus talked about hell more than any other subject in the New Testament. Not because he wanted people to go there, because he wanted them not to go there. 
Is everybody tracking with me? So when you see Sheol or Hades or the grave, it's talking about hell, okay? And the translators are just trying to make it easy for people. But this is what happened. It's saying hell was enlarged. It opened its mouth beyond measure. Hell wasn't created for us, but because of us, hell had to be enlarged the glory in their multitude and their pomp and he and he who is jubilant shall prideful shall descend into it it says in verse 15 people now shall be brought down each man shall be humbled and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled so basically hell wasn't created according to scripture for us it was created for the devil and his angels but hell not by design but by necessity had to be enlarged because man chose to walk away from God and pursue wickedness. Is everybody tracking with me? A final parable from Matthew chapter 21 using the same language in verse 33. Basically, a story is told. Jesus says that there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it and dug a wine press and built a watchtower and then he rented the vineyard and some farmers moved into that place and when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect the fruit. The servants were the prophets. The tenant seized his servants, and they beat one, killed another, stoned a third. And then he sent other servants to them more than the first, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his only son to them. He thought to themselves, they'll respect my son, but they treated him the same way, and they cast him out, and they killed him. The son was rejected. The third story I told you about was how the son was rejected. God was rejected multiple times. It was inexcusable, rebellious rejection of Jesus. And so the problem with this whole line of reasoning is we're looking at it through our eyes instead of God's eyes. But if we look at it through God's eyes, good doctrine, but more importantly, God is a person and from his position, the question shouldn't be, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? The question should be, how can anybody reject a loving God? Would you stand to your feet? Let me pray for you. How can anyone reject a loving God? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'd like the prayer team to come down front. I want to encourage you to receive prayer at the end of service today because this is a very important message in a line of demarcation in your faith and walk with God. I asked myself this the other day. How can anybody reject a loving God? And I just thought to myself, I rejected him so many years, so many times. I don't know. I really don't know. Only, only you can answer that. But if you're here today and you're listening online and you're, and, you're, and you're listening within the sound of my voice, again, every head bowed, every eye closed, please honor the person you're right at your left. I'm trying to give you, them a private moment in, in, in a public space. It's so important. But are, are, are you ready to choose God today? Are you ready to choose God today? What will it take? What's it going to take? Jesus did, he went out of his way, prophet Isaiah said, to try to create an environment where we would come to God. He's put you in this time, place, and space in history that perhaps you would reach out to God. He's used circumstance and leveraged them not to make your life difficult, but to make life for you have meaning and purpose in relationship with him. And yet, we still can reject him. And if you're here today and you're ready to do that no longer, but to surrender your life to Jesus, I'm gonna ask you to boldly raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. I don't wanna leave today without making sure that I'm in right standing with God. God bless you, God bless you all over the room. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's awesome. Yes, yes, that's awesome. You don't wanna miss it. It's so important. I see your hand over there on the right. That's awesome. It's really important you tell somebody today and that you give away what God has given you, but I'm going to pray a prayer with you, but I'm going to ask you to come down front after the service today and have somebody pray with you and just kind of seal this prayer. But I want you to say this with me. Church, would you agree with me? Say, Jesus, 
come into my heart today. I believe that you are just and you never render an unjust judgment. And I believe that you are a loving God and that you love me and that you care about me and that you're going out of your way to reach me. And I'm coming to you right now. I'm seeking you right now. And I'm thanking you that I can be found in Christ. Father, I pray for every person that prayed that prayer that they would find relationship with you and they come to know you in a personal and profound way. Change them from the inside out, Lord. I thank you that, uh, that time was split because of Jesus and heaven and hell was split because of Jesus and some will choose him and many today chose to serve Jesus and follow Jesus and for that we celebrate and everybody said amen and amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a big hand clap.